is the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show. Coming up we get the latest on the bushfires from an ABC reporter on the scene and barely a year after he was required to euthanise 70 plus hives due to a varroa mite outbreak. We hear from a beekeeper and local RFS captain who lost all of his hives when the fire hit emergency levels at Nimboida. He got the adrenaline rushing. Um, I spoke to the property owner on the way up and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah bud, everything's good. Um, um, the fires are on the other side of the road. We're looking after things up here, don't, don't worry. And it all changed the next day about 1.30 when it, when it turned, turned it on again. Yeah. I really didn't expect him to get taken by the fire. It just um, said, oh, shit, how am I going to... We'll have more on that story shortly. You can always send us a text uh, on the Country Hour, 0467 Let us know if uh, you've got fires in your area and uh, how they're tracking at the moment. Uh, benign, More benign conditions today and hopefully over the next few days as well, maybe even a little bit of rain. 0467 982 is the number to text me here at the Country Hour. But as we were saying, in regards to those fires, weather conditions have eased on the fire grounds and uh, around northern New South Wales. And they're hopeful we might even see some rain to put out the scores of fires started, uh, the RFS say, by lightning strikes. Bruce McKenzie watched earlier this week as a ring of fires encircled the town of Tenterfield and then drove past thousands of hectares of scorched paddocks. He says the next issue will be tallying up the damage, repairing fences and ensuring that stock that have survived the fires have enough fodder to keep them going. I started out by asking Bruce what he'd been up to since we spoke yesterday. Yeah, it's been an interesting uh, 24 hours, Michael. Uh, Just after I spoke to you, uh, we headed back into Jennings, which is just on the New South Wales side of the border. Saw some pretty extraordinary uh, firefighting, to be honest. Um, We were right there on the ground when uh, a water bombing chopper came in. We were just near a little spot fire and there were a few people out watching what was happening and I've got to tell you, everyone was pretty amazed by just how accurate um, this chopper pilot was with with dumping this load of, I assume it was water or fire retardant. Just pinpoint accuracy to knock this little spot fire on the head and and that was something that uh, definitely... um, got everyone sort of talking in the wake of that and and, and that's been reflected uh, as you know you move around town and chat to people who this time it seems are are genuinely impressed by how the RFS has uh, handled the situation also it's kind of eerie as you drive back and you see just how much of the landscape has been scorched it's not just bushland there's a lot of uh, grazing land and pasture it's just black now. And, uh, yeah, it makes for an eerie scene as you drive through that. Then um, late yesterday afternoon, stretching into the early evening, there was actually a community meeting in uh, Tenterfield. We got to hear uh, a little bit more about um, you know, the services that were on offer and, and to hear some of the community concerns and, and what people were talking about. Uh, and, and by and large, they were, they, were, they, were pretty, they were pretty happy, weren't they, with the RFS? Yeah, they are, because we got a really interesting insight into just how challenging this had been for the RFS. So, and we also learned how it all started. So we go back almost exactly a week ago. There were these lightning strikes on the northern Tablelands, and 
we had the situation where more than 40 fires started almost simultaneously, which is, as you can imagine, what a stretch on, on normal resources that is. And then we fast forward to Tuesday where we had those horrible weather conditions, the temperatures in, in the mid to high 30s and those really strong northwest winds. And that's when we saw that amazing situation where Tenerfield was winged by, at one stage, I think it was seven fires at emergency level. And so when we just go a couple of days forward from that, the fact that the property losses have been pretty much confined to you know, some, some sheds on rural properties and, and no one has uh, lost uh, their actual home in New South Wales, as far as we can tell as yet, um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people are very impressed by the efforts of uh, firefighters and the other agencies that have helped in this effort. But of course we do know that a lot of pastures scorched, you know, a lot of fences burnt, so you know, we understand there are stock losses. It's just very hard to yeah. put a number on that as yet. But uh, uh, And at the community meeting, you know, uh, they were they were um, praising the RFS. And that, some, sometimes after fires, the locals aren't that happy with the RFS, but this, this, this group are. Yeah, that certainly did seem to be the mood. And people were thinking that uh, some lessons were learned four years ago when uh, a similar thing happened to this right. part of the world, uh, and they were gen- genuinely impressed by, by how well the situation had been handled. I suspect, Michael, that the next issue that's going to have to be resolved will be getting fodder to those stock that have survived this ordeal, because, as I say, thousands of hectares of, of pasture and grazing land has been scorched and difficult to get aircraft in um, at the moment because there are so many firefighting aircraft uh, in this area. So getting fodder to those surviving livestock, I think, uh, is going to be an issue that's going to have to be addressed in the next few days. Something else that I thought was interesting um, that I think will be of interest to your listeners as well, I was talking about how um, you know no actual homes have been lost as far as we can tell at this stage. And I was chatting to a bloke called uh, Scott Mack, who's the Deputy Incident Controller, about that. And he was singing the praises of uh, not just his volunteers, but also the people that that are living on these rural properties. A lot of them now have on-farm firefighting. And and it was something that I witnessed firsthand uh, a couple of nights ago when we were out uh, on one of the fire grounds. And... um, the property owner there had one of those utes with a water tank on the back, and, and some yeah, a lot. Of, yeah, that seems to be. Yeah, there's a lot of people that got really well equipped for firefighting these days. Yeah, and it's all, it's almost like a little sort of neighbourhood RFS where mm. they go and help out and, and make sure that their their neighbours are okay. And uh, yeah, Scott Mack was uh, full of praise for how effective that had been as well. Well, let's have, a, let's have a listen to what Scott Mack was, has been saying. The area of concern tomorrow that we're really working on are the fires around Wollongar and Jennings, uh, the fire at Woodside Road and the fire Tarbin Road or Donnybrook, Sawyer's Gully area. What's your concern there? Uh, just that the fire is spreading towards remote rural properties and threatening those properties. We've got this situation where we've got, I think it's almost half a dozen fires kind of ringing Tenterfield and, and the wind seems to be coming from different directions. It, it, does that make it super challenging? Yeah, it does make it challenging because the uh, wind's changing the fire direction and so we're having constantly to move crews from one side of Tenerfield to the other or around town to make sure that we contain the fires and keep the fires out of town. 
does it make it more difficult if, if they join up or is it a bit easier if they're kept separate? Uh, it's a bit easier because it is, then it's only one fire to manage. They are bigger, but it means we only have to look at one fire. Now, I heard you saying in there that uh, you think lightning strikes probably started all of these? Yes, on Thursday afternoon last week we had a number of lightning strikes and we had 47 fires start across the Northern Tablelands area. It's a wild number, isn't it? It is a wild number and it was very wild in the IMT trying to cope with all the fires as they started and get crews to them and get as many under control as we could. Unfortunately we didn't manage to get them all but we did get a number of them. What are conditions like out there um, if you're trying to control a fire? Uh, conditions are very dry, but the biggest thing is a lot of these areas were burnt in 2019 and 2020, but it's the wind. The wind's uh, swirling around and keeps changing direction, and we can't get it constantly from one area, but the conditions are milder for the next few days, so we're working very hard to get these fires contained. People here have got memories of four years ago. What's changed, do you reckon? I don't know, but what, from what I'm talking to, the, um, a lot of the locals are saying the fire activity this time is worse. Has the RFS uh, learned lessons from then? Does it do anything differently? Yes, we're always learning um, from all the coronial inquiries and all the inquiries. The RFS has made a lot of changes and we're embedding those into place. And the um, biggest thing, probably the biggest thing we are doing is the use of the farm fire units and the local landholders. We're really encouraging that and they're doing a great job along with all the other agencies, National Parks, Forest Corporation. We're all working together to try and contain these fires. Is that, is that um, we see these utes on properties and they've got the water tanks on the back and they can almost effectively protect their own property. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, the farm fire units, like we turn up with one truck but there might be 10 or 12 neighbours all there helping their neighbour put a fire out. Um, the residents, it's all like, like the local RFS brigades, they all want to help their neighbours or they help their local community and protect their community. I was a little bit confused with something you said about uh, property losses. Um, what, are you, what are your thoughts or what, what's the info you've got? You've had assessment teams out in a couple of the areas. What have you learned? The RFS um, has building impact assessment teams out at They've been out at Woodside Road today. We have reports of a number of structures being lost, um, but until we confirm those from the gr- from the ground, and they've now gone to Jennings, and they've also been down to the fire at Tabulum, Abelby Drive. So you're thinking mostly um, it might be farm sheds rather than homes? Most of the reports so far have been outbuildings and farm sheds, and so Jennings have no reports of house loss at this stage. Yeah. A couple of sheds and outbuildings and things like that. Deputy Chief Incident Controller Scott Max speaking there with the ABC's Bruce McKenzie. It's uh, a quarter past 12 on the country hour. Well, the RFS suspects at least 30 properties have been affected by the Glens River Road fire this week, but residents are still coming to terms with the damage the fires caused almost a fortnight ago. Beekeeper and captain of his local RFS brigade, Glen Locke, lost all of his beehives when the fire first hit emergency level on the 13th of October. It was barely over a year after he was required to euthanise 70-plus hives due to a varroa mite outbreak in Nana Glen. Our reporter Charles Rushworth spoke with Glenn about uh, the RFS and the beekeeping community supporting him in those darkest moments. So you had my bees split four ways uh, sort of to mitigate risk, I guess, but, yeah, it didn't, didn't quite work for me when, when varroa struck because they were all within the, within the 10k radius of the of the infested premises, yeah. Did you lose all of your hives as a result of that, um, those quarantine measures? Yeah, mate, I had 74, and um, they were all within the red zone, so the site at Caramba was about 100 metres inside the line. I think I was the only 
Yanni commercial beekeeper in that red zone that lost all their bees. Yeah, I lost everything. And, I mean, how did you even go about thinking about starting again back then? Um, what ultimately led you to, to restarting your business out near Nimboida? I just wanted to get going again, and I, I knew I couldn't do it anywhere near here because if this zone grew, I wanted to be well away. So, you know, 70 k's up at Nimboida was, was ideal, and so, yeah, I jumped at the chance to go up there, yeah. So you're also a captain with the Nana Glen RFS Brigade. Do you mind telling me a little bit about that Glens Creek Road fire? Um, when did it first pop up and, and what were you thinking? Yeah, listening to the radios, I heard Glens Creek mentioned. Um, it gradually developed um, to a point where we were asked to send a strike, strike team from there up to Glens Creek Road and in borders. <laughs> it got the adrenaline rushing. Um, I spoke to the property owner on the way up and he said, yeah, yeah, yeah bud, everything's good. Um, um, the fire's on the other side of the road. We're looking after things up here, don't don't worry. And it all changed the next day about 1.30 when it when it turned turned it on again, yeah. I really didn't expect him to get taken by the fire. It, it just um, said, oh, shit, how am I going <laughs> to get myself out of this one, you know? It, it looked pretty grim. started talking to more and more people and I realised that people wanted to help me. Put a little video up on my YouTube channel of just, just what had happened just let people know what had happened and then yeah they're just the, the support I got from there has, has just been overwhelming I can't believe it yeah guy set up a, a GoFundMe which is just going like a pet I can't believe it um, so the, the support is really coming from the community the local community and the beekeeping community and the RFS community in terms of bees I've got a, a group of people up in the Northern Rivers who I'm, I actually work with and they've got together and they're organising another 40 hives for me and I hope to have at least 10 or 15 of them on the ground in the Arara Valley in a fortnight. I, I feel great about it all. Um, I, I will get going again. And, um, yeah, it's just, you know, you just got to take take it on the chin. And a lesson I've learned from this week is that if, you, if you're offered help, take it. And uh, Amateur Beekeeping Australia Vice Chairman Doug Purdy says with the one-two punch of bushfires and varroa mite, beekeepers are facing down a pretty terrible season. It's been a terrible few years. You know, we've lurched from, from terrible drought and bushfires to too much rain at the wrong time to Varroa, and now we've seen to a cycle, cycle back to bushfires again. You know, it's just dreadful and really, really, really challenging for, for quite a large number of people. The other thing is it's also difficult for some of those people to access um, uh, support because they don't have property. They just have hives that are affected by bushfires and so forth, and sometimes that makes it more difficult. And that, that's Glenn's situation here. He had his hives yeah. on a, a property that wasn't his, which of course is very common for beekeepers all over the, yeah. all over the world. But that does put him in a tricky predicament with government support at this stage. Yeah, the same thing happens sometimes during floods that um, the beekeepers are not are supported in the same way as landowners because they're just using the land rather than owning it. Amateur Beekeeping Australia Vice Chairman Doug Purdy there and uh, that report put together by Charles Rushworth. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 20 minutes past 12. Got got a text from Dave in Trundle. He was saying he's had no rain since uh, the 20 millimetres they got back on October the 4th. He says there's too much tinder for potential fuel for uh, fire and he says uh, any chance of rain. We'll be asking the Bureau about uh, that in about uh, 15 minutes' time. It's, as I said, it's about 21 minutes past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.
G'day, I'm Nick Grimm. Join me for the world today. Victorian police make an arrest in the case involving the mushroom poisoning deaths of three people in August. We'll bring you all the latest details. Russia unleashes its heaviest bombardment of Ukraine so far this year. Could it mark a new phase in the ongoing war? And wake up Jeff. Could the Wiggles on high repeat provide the solution to one town's problem with rough sleepers? Or will it just become a political hot potato? Okay, you can join Nick Grimm uh, on uh, the World Today. But here on the Country Hour, the Grafton Jacaranda Festival is on, despite some fire activity in the region. And our reporter, Kim Honan, was there this morning speaking to farmers, brewers and butchers about the event. She spoke, first of all, to Jeff Smith from Ice Cream about a special new product that he creates for the festival. Yeah, we started about 13 years ago. It was actually inspired by uh, a, an ice cream that Langley's Cafe used to get made by the old Peter's Ice Cream Factory, which is long gone. And, yeah, 13 years ago we came up with it and uh, based on boysenberries and berries generally. So, yeah, a, a local product made here with local produce. And it's become a bit of a, a cult product as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, the visitors and um, guests, they've, uh, they've hooked onto it and it's been, um, it's been followed up with Destination New South Wales and a lot of tourists. Um, uh, and it's, very, it's a visual thing. It's a visual thing. Get, get your ice cream, get a photo with the tree behind it. So, yeah, it's, been, um, it's just been building each year. Yeah, and so it's totally taken off. And how much ice cream are you producing each year for it? Well, this year we've done uh, a thousand litres, a bit over a thousand litres. Yeah. I started originally 13 years ago with a little domestic machine. I made, I think, uh, 20 litres. So it's just um, t- t- continues to grow. Yeah, so local milk, local sugar, all good local stuff. Exactly, exactly. A few uh, local um, blueberries thrown in. So I can't reveal the total recipe, top secret, but yeah, look out for it. Well, I'm going to come grab some later. Thank you so much for chatting to us, Jeff. That's Jeff Smith. But right now, Kieran McAndrew from Bent Bridge Brewing. Good morning, Kieran. You've just run half a marathon this morning. Good morning, Kim. Not quite, just 14 kilometres this morning. Oh, wow. So thank you so much for joining us. Bent Bridge Brewing, fairly new uh, brewery, started during COVID. Yeah, we started, uh, myself and my mates, about 2020. We started um, refining some recipes and really getting into brewing beer and doing it really well. We're all about local community, so we wanted to make some really good local beer and we refined some recipes and now we have our beer available at several pubs in Grafton. And how many different styles? How many beers? At the moment, commercially, just two different styles, um, but we're working on releasing a couple more of our varieties in the next few weeks, uh, particularly at the Craft Beer Festival. We have a weekly run every Wednesday at 5.30, leaving from the Clarence River at the end of Prince Street. Um, Yesterday, we would have had about 100 people, majority of which were running in the colour purple, celebrating purple, celebrating beer, community running, all things we love about this city. And there's some photos of that amazing run up on our Facebook page. The runners, of course, went over Bent Bridge, dressed in purple, purple balloons, purple tutus, fabulous. Yeah, it's just so iconic. We love it. Um, We love what we do. We love our community. Um, We also love getting behind the Jacaranda Festival. Um, We've been volunteering and doing what we can to support the Jacaranda Fun Run, um, which is this Sunday, and there's still opportunities for people to join the Fun Run. There's two kilometre, five kilometre, ten kilometre and half marathon events. And finally, Karen, we've heard of the purple ice cream. Can we see a purple seasonal batch of beer down the track? Down the track, possibly. Probably not this season. I'm sorry, Kim, but um, it's something we could work on for Jacka 2024. Thank you so much for joining us. That is Kieran McAndrew from Bent Bridge Brewing. And finally today, Jeff Jones, who's a local butcher, uh, beef producer, has been providing the snags here for Jacaranda breakfast for many years. Good morning, Kim. Um, Yeah, it's... uh, 
over well over 20 years now. So, uh, yeah, we've got a long history here. Today, weather's fine. A little bit of a smoke haze backdrop, but uh, I don't think that's going to stop uh, yeah. people coming. Well, you're a beef producer as well. Intense drought in the Grafton Clarence area. How are you managing? Are you having to destock, buy and feed? Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of different strategies out there that has to be adopted by um, producers all over, uh, big or small. Um, yeah, tough, tough time. Um, we didn't get our normal winter rains, which uh, is now impacting us uh, in, in the spring. Uh, and on top of that, we're, um, yeah, we're dealing with bushfires, which is uh, yeah, taking out a lot of that ag land and, and grazing opportunity for people as well. So. And just finally, Jeff, you are the Deputy Captain of the Pillar, Pillar Valley Rural Fire Brigade. You've been busy in Nimboida for the last week or so with the fire there. Yeah, absolutely, Kim. Yeah, um, it, uh, it turned a bit ugly two days ago uh, with a westerly and then, then a southerly change, which uh, put that fire outside our containment lines. And uh, the boys have been uh, spent all day yesterday and they will be in the next few days gathering it up and trying to bring that under control. But um, fortunately, there's been some burns that were done back in August by landowners, and that's a bit of a godsend because they can use that as a, you know, a line to pull them up. So well done to those blokes that did an early burn. Yeah. And well done to you for your service as well. That is Jeff Jones. Thank you so much for joining us on The Rural Report. Thank you very much, Kim, and um, happy Jacaranda, mate. That's Jeff Jones, butcher and beef producer, ending that report by Kim Honan from the Jacaranda Festival in Grafton and those marathon events that they were mentioning there. They're on this Sunday, 26 past 12. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio, New South Wales. Well, the Royal Fire Service is warning about the risk of spontaneous combustion after several recent haystack fires in the Riverina. A crowbar stuck in the hay has long been used to indicate whether or not it might be at risk of catching fire, but the new research has been looking at some more, let me say, high-tech solutions to the problem. The uh, uh, project involves Charles Sturt University, the Food Agility CRC, insurer IAG, and a technology company as well that's examined the quality and conditions inside the haystack. CSU's John Broster told Emily Doak that commercially available sensors were put to a bit of a test. For the temperature probes, we put them, the commercial ones in bales at four different locations, as a farmer would, and then we had some scientific standard temperature probe placed alongside them. And what we found was we got good consistency between probes if we set two of the commercial probes in the same bale, and we got good consistency between the commercial probes and the scientific standard probes that we used. And even when we got readings that we thought were a bit weird, they matched each other. It probably taught us we need to understand the underlying factors a bit more and also that it may not just be temperature that we're looking at for monitoring. It may be the rate at which that temperature is increasing that is as important as the actual temperature itself. And uh, in terms of the other parts of the research, we've heard, for example, um, 
from the Rural Fire Service recently in the wake of two recent haystack fires in the Riverina. There's uh, some concern that potentially new baling equipment in making bigger, denser, more tightly baled product increases the risk of spontaneous combustion. Is that something that you've looked at as part of your research at all? So, yes, we evaluated some bales, larger bales, at three different baling pressures. And we did find at three different moistures, so we bailed some hay too early and a couple of days too early, a day and a half too early and on time. And we found that the heavier bales did get hotter and did take longer to cool down. And the standard one, while it got heavy early, it cooled down quite rapidly. What, I suppose, is the value of what you've learnt so far for producers Um, in particular? What we've learnt, and it sounds like a scientist talking, is we need to do more research over multiple years to work out the various factors. We know moisture is important, but we get more fires in a drier year where the sugars are higher. But just the interactions of all these factors, what rate of heating can we um, tolerate and accept and how quickly things increase? And just getting a better idea of the important thresholds, not just for spontaneous combustion, but also quality of the hay involved if you're looking at a high-quality hay market. So uh, one of the the key takeaways, I suppose, is that, you know, technology that is available could potentially be a a tool that producers might be able to use once we understand more about the, the factors that we're looking for, particularly in terms of spontaneous combustion. Yes, the commercially available probes give a good indication of the temperature. So that enables farmers, if they see temperatures are too high or increasing um, rapidly, they can do something about it. But remember, of course, temperature is only the symptom of what's going on in the, inter- in the reactions, both chemical and microbial, between sugars and moisture and maybe other factors involved. Charles Sturt University researcher Dr John Broster speaking there with Emily Doke about uh, those uh, recent uh, series of haystack fires. I remember seeing quite a few of them in uh, Western Victoria when I was down there as a reporter and uh, pretty devastating they were, especially if uh, people were relying on that feed uh, as a lot of people will be this year. It's 29 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country. Shortly we'll have some weather details and they assure me that they're going to be able to talk about a little bit of rain for a change. But uh, uh, joining us to talk about news headlines now is Adam Storey. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. Um, In Victoria, we're going to start where uh, police have arrested a woman over uh, the mushroom uh, poisoning Ah, incident. right. Uh, which resulted in the uh, deaths of three people. Erin Patterson was arrested at her home this morning. Police remain there. Uh, She has always maintained her innocence and that uh, she didn't deliberately poison her lunch guests. Uh, So, yeah, no charges laid as yet, but uh, certainly in custody. Over in the Middle East, hundreds of foreign nationals, including 20 Australians, have managed to get out of uh, Gaza. Uh, They went through the Rafa border crossing last night 
after uh, Egypt opened it there. It also came as Israeli forces advanced deeper into Gaza. The health ministry uh, says the Palestinian death toll has now reached more than 8,800 people, while 1,400 people uh, have been killed in Israel since the fighting broke out. Uh, Kmart uh, copped a big fine, $1.3 million by the uh, communications watchdog for breaching spam laws. You know, if you order something online, you inevitably get, mm. unless you, you know, tick the right box, you get the... Uh, well, even if you tick the right box... Even if you tick the right box, you, they still, still come and it. then yeah, you... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Um, apparently Kmart sent 200,000 of these emails to customers. I was wondering why I was July getting so 2022 many. <laughs> and May this year. I don't think they're, they're the only ones doing it. I'm sure I spent a day unsubscribing to all these yep. people. It doesn't make any difference. It's like, you know, I bought something off you. doesn't mean I'm coming back. Yeah. You know? mm. Anyway. Especially if you keep emailing me. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, you're not doing yourselves any favours. Mm. Um, and the Wallabies uh, will be under a... We're, uh, this is the rugby team, by the way. Right. <laughs> not, the, not the animal. Uh, <laughs> well, I had a feeling it might be the. the yeah. Uh, a review panel uh, has been announced made up of former internationals Andrew Slack and Justin Harrison, along with high performance consultant Darlene Harrison. Uh, it comes after the resignation of Eddie Jones this week and uh, the Wallabies' worst performance, although I did see that well, uh, Eddie's coaching a barbarian side yeah. uh, this weekend. I think with about like, eight Australians in Yeah, it. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them w- that weren't in the squad, I think. So he's and, uh, taken them. To, I think they're playing in Cardiff. Is it Cardiff? Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yes. Some, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in uh, in the UK. But mm. I mean, and he was saying, uh, yeah. Well, he's saying there's been a, a problem in Australian rugby for twenty years. So just having a review panel now after this yeah, one, yeah. I don't know that I'll it's going to help uh, too much. Uh, Phil Wall came out yesterday and said there's there's. There's deep, there's problems. deep-seated problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, it's just not, just not that it's just not gelling with the nation at the moment. No, no, no. it's not. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, it's, yes. I don't know how how easy it will be to stop the spiral down. Yeah. Mm. All right. Thanks okay. for that, Adam. We'll be listening at one o'clock. It's uh, coming up to twenty-five minutes to one, and uh, let's find out what's happening with the weather. Dylan Bird at the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you, Michael? Very well. So uh, you were able to tell us a little bit of rain and hopefully some rain hitting to the fire grounds to dampen some of those fires. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It does look like it. So today looks fairly dry. Um, there could be like a very light shower, less than one millimetre for parts of um, the northern coast and northern tablelands. But looking into Friday, Saturday and Sunday, um, we've got this inland trough that's uh, developing over New South Wales and also... Um, a nice uh, moist northeasterly um, wind uh, profile. So with that, looks like we could see anywhere between five to fifteen mils of rain over, say, the northern tablelands and northern rivers and mid north coast. And then looking into uh, the northwest slopes and plains, uh, somewhere between five or ten mils at times. Um, but perhaps more like one or five mils um, west of Tamworth. So. Um, they're the locations that look like to be receiving the most rainfall, and those values are pretty much valid for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. All right, um, so three days like, of similar yeah, similar totals. Yeah, that's right. Um, but um, also, uh, it looks like we might have a bit more of a um, bit more of a ridge forming over New South Wales on Monday. Um, so we're seeing reduced rainfall, but we still have um, an easterly flow for a lot of uh, New South Wales. So still seeing some some uh, light 
totals maybe in the five millimeter range um, in the far northeast on Monday, and then looking to Tuesday, Wednesday, that inland trough redevelops again, and we are seeing broad areas of New South Wales as far west as Cobar and Griffith, getting anywhere between one to maybe up to maybe yeah, one to five mils in places, um, but with a with a storm, we could see anywhere up to maybe 10 to 15 millimetres, um, and that's from Tuesday onwards. Right, okay, so, so Tuesday next week, and that's uh, that, and so rain in the Riverina, maybe the Central West as well, or, or not really? That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The eastern half of New South Wales, all the way up to Cobar and Griffith, um, and then looking dry. But not sort of big totals, one to five, but some storm activity. That's right. So it's going to be a bit of a mixed bag because uh, a lot of the rain will come through isolated storms. So at, at the moment, the the models are putting out um, very broad areas of like very low totals. But um, to me, that definitely means we're seeing thunderstorm activity in most of those areas. And it's, it, it can't pick where the thunderstorms are. So of course, it's just giving us a very broad overview. But um, that's from Tuesday onwards. But yeah, it looks like over the weekend, we could see uh, some pretty significant falls um, in some parts, particularly over the mid-north coast and uh, northern tablelands. And okay. with that, um, severe thunderstorms are possible um, with some risk of hail and uh, damaging wind gusts. Okay, hopefully no dry lightning, which is what started the fires there before. It sounds like there is a bit more of the wet stuff in there as well. That's right, yeah. Um, however, I guess uh, when I'm thinking about it, dry lightning is possible again, particularly from uh, Tuesday onwards, um, but mostly over uh, New South Wales inland. So... Uh, particularly like west of Dubbo and Wagga, um, and further west than that, uh, looks like some of the thunderstorm profiles look to be fairly high-based, and uh, with that, not much rainfall getting to the surface. So if there's lightning, uh, I guess that could see new ignitions, um, yeah, particularly over, I guess, uh, grasslands. Okay, so when you're talking about this rain, or it could be three days of 10 millimetres each day in the sort mm-hmm. of Nimboida, mid-north coast, That's also right. Tenterfield as well, so hopefully some relief for those firefighters there, it That's sounds right. like. Fingers That's crossed. Right. That's right. And then some of it is extending all the way down to the Batemans Bay, but that, that area, is, it's, it's more like, yeah, one to five millimetres. So it's, it's, it's quite a broad area to describe, but um, our focus at the moment is mostly in that northeast corner of New South Wales. And cooler temperatures? Yeah, that's right. Um, so for the east, it looks like temperatures could be anywhere between three to eight degrees below the November average um, due to mostly cloud activity and rainfall. Um, looks like in the far west, though, temperatures starting to increase, uh, particularly from tomorrow onwards, maybe reaching somewhere between the low 30s to mid 30s uh, through the weekend and into next week. Okay, all right. So some positive news in terms of those uh, fires and damping them down and uh, uh, also maybe a bit of, little bit of rain for those people that, uh, that want it. Hopefully spark a bit of pasture growth as well in some of those other areas. So some, uh, some positive news there uh, and, uh, and the heat seems to be abating too. So Dylan, thanks for that. No worries. Have a good one, Michael. It's coming up to 20 minutes to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, the President of the United States, Joe Biden, has made his pitch to stop a mass exit of family farms in his country. Speaking from a barn at a family-owned Dutch Creek farm at Northfield in Minnesota, the President promised more than $5 billion in funds for more competition in meat processing, programs for more job growth and for what he's termed climate-smart agriculture. It's a wide-ranging plan that's trying to address similar problems to those that are being faced by Farmers here in Australia, Warwick Long, has more. I am beyond honoured 
to welcome and introduce President Joe Biden. Standing next to a green tractor and in front of a large American flag at the farm of Brad Kluver, President Joe Biden laid out his plan to stop the exodus of farms in his country over the decades. Hello, hello, hello. Over the past 40 years or so, we've had a practice in America, economic practice called trickle-down economics. And it hit rural America especially hard. It hollowed out Main Street, telling farmers the only path to success was to get big or get out. Tax cuts for big corporations encouraged companies to grow bigger and bigger, move jobs and production overseas for cheaper labor, and undercut local small businesses. Meat-producing companies and the retail grocery chains consolidate, leaving farmers with ranchers with few choices about where to sell their products, reducing their bargaining power. You know, in part because of these conditions, over the past four decades, we lost over 400,000 farms in America. I came to office determined to change that. So that's the problem. What is the president's solution? Well, $5 billion in programs were announced to stop family farmers leaving agriculture and start getting younger people to return to middle America. The president says it's his type of economics that will deliver the best outcome for agriculture in America. The money's there to help farmers and ranchers tackle climate crisis through climate smart agriculture and cover crops. Nutrient management, prescribed grapes, sorting carbon in the soil. Under our plan, farmers can diversify and earn additional income just selling into the local markets. Let me give you an example. When a farmer sells his commodities normally, you have to go through the grocery store and the farmers get about 18 cents for every, every dollar they have. Sometimes you get less than that. Some, some, but, but when a farmer sells locally, the farmers can get anything from 50 to 75 cents for their same exact product. We're also promoting competition in agricultural markets. Just four big corporations control more than half the market in beef, pork, and poultry. And because so few companies control so much of the market, if one of those processing plants goes offline, it can cause massive supply chain disruptions, slowing production, and cost farmers big. It happened to Brad. When processing plants shut down during the pandemic, and he had to rely on social media to sell us hogs. Folks, look. There's something wrong when just 7% of the American farms get nearly 90%. 7% get 90% of the farm income. When I took office, I decided to invest a billion dollars through the American Rescue Plan in small and medium-sized independent meat processors to expand their capacity. Today, I'm proud to announce new funding that will go directly to rural communities. One billion dollars to fix aging critical rural infrastructure like electric water, like electricity, water, wastewater systems. We're investing millions in building new bioeconomy and with homegrown biofuels to be able to achieve it. And folks, this is just a start. Today I'm announcing we're investing nearly two billion dollars to help more farmers 
adopt practices that fight climate change and earn new income. We're investing $145 million for farmers and rural communities to install clean energy technologies like solar panels and lowering electric bills. An additional $274 million to expand rural high-speed internet even further. Two billion to support communities in our rural partners network, which puts federal employees on the ground to help rural communities take advantage of the federal resources, let them know what they are and where they are. Minnesota was chosen because Joe Biden's first challenger for the Democratic nomination of the presidency is coming from Minnesota. So the president was at pains to push for rural American voters and support ahead of his push for re-election, which is to come next year. When rural America does well, when Indian country does well, we all do well. That's the President of the United States, Joe Biden, with his $5 billion program for farmers to to stop the mass exodus of family farms in the United States. And that report from Warwick Long, it's a quarter to one. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. The WA government will pay nearly $180 million to settle a class action brought on behalf of thousands of Aboriginal Australians who had their wages withheld while subject to onerous legislation. The class action was brought by Kimberley Stockman and artist Mervyn Street, who worked on stations for most of his life and was not paid a wage until he reached his 30s. His complaint was regarded a policy in place between 1936 and 1972 that allowed the state government to to withhold up to 75% of an Aboriginal person's wage. Mirawong elder David Newry gave evidence during the class action on behalf of members of his family who lived and worked on Ivanhoe and Newry stations in the East Kimberley. For him, it's a complicated feeling of relief. Well, I mean, I can't get any more joyous about it, you know? And and I think... um it's about time that they um, recognise something like this for the hard work that our people have put, you know? Mm. How- well, including myself, probably. But um, it's a worthwhile thing, you know? Um, and and for, to, to really point out that um, our people were the backbone of the cattle industry. Do you think that this is recognition now? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's all... To do with the effort that our people have, have put and through hardship, you know, like um, our, our people were just basically tr- treated like um, slave. Has it been difficult for you to be part of this court case process? Well, it did. I mean, you know, the, the hardest part for me was talking about my family, how they've been treated in, in court. You know, where where one of my father's father brother got tied to a tree and got whipped for not hopping on a horse that morning because he was um, really sick in the stomach, you know? Mm. And and that kind of thing, uh, that sort of information was really um, hard for us to, to, to tell other people about it, you know, especially in court. You must be glad that you've... Push through that. Yeah, and you know, 
glad that I've, I've, I've taken part in some of this um, storytelling, you know, and, and or information sharing, I should say, mm. about the hardship that our people have, have taken, some of the people that have waited since the time when the, the, um, the lawyers came to, when they gave us that information about this um, class action thing, um, few of them have passed away now, you know, and hoping that that'd be some of the recipient about this um, ro- royalty that people are getting, you know. Like last year, one of my, my, my mother passed away, or year before last, sorry, and she's not won't be able to get what she deserved, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good in one way, but then it's like it's um, something that um, feel a bit sad too, in a way, that where people were just about to get these things, but just couldn't make it to the end, you know. It, it's not a, you know, I, I can't say I feel um, ha- glad in one way, but in the other way, again, it's, it's a sad thing for me that I know that my, my people deserve this more, you know, my parents, actually, and my uncles and, yeah, well, all my family, the eld- elderly family or the elderly one, um, you know, th- they were the one that should have been receiving a lot of these things. And but it's um yeah and for me you know um like they're gone now and it's a really mournful feeling for me really just that, so that then I'd hear with us now to hear this kind of news you know that's Mirawong Elder David Newry speaking to Alice Marshall about that uh, settlement in the class action for wages uh, long withheld by the uh, WA government ten minutes to one on the country hour ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We've got a few uh, texts in about uh, the rain, a couple about uh, Joe Biden, uh, some complimentary, some not. But uh, but Trevor's texted in about the rain saying at Narrabri they would have been pretty grateful to get that 20 mils that... uh, that uh, we were hearing about from Trundle uh, in October. He says they haven't had a fall that big since March. And he says, sent in a photo of uh, a neighbour's paddock, which was planted in May, and you can see rows of wheat that have emerged, but they've subsequently died. But he says uh, on the bright side, there's very little uh, f- fire fuel left now as a result. So uh, that's a perspective on the uh, rainfall or lack of it from Narrabri from Trevor. It's uh, coming up to... Uh, 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 nine minutes to one on the country hour. Well, food processors in the Murray-Darling Basin say jobs are on the line if the federal parliament passes the water bill that extends the basin plan without amendment. A delegation representing Fruit Canner, SPC, Sunrise and the dairy industry pleaded with senators to understand the impact of the decision they will make before the end of the year. Warwick Long has more. Fruit Rice and dairy are staple supermarket products, and the producers of them have warned senators that the extension of the Basin Plan and the promise to buy back more water would harm their farmer suppliers, their communities and their business. To add uncertainty to it, you're, you're almost pushing people to, to try to exit their business or exit the industry and go into something that's a bit more a bit, a bit more stable or a bit more predictable than that. Hassan Rafai is the chair of SPC Global. In the Shepparton Valley and the Goulburn Valley, we're the largest buyers of fruit in the area. 
And I could tell you if we, for example, go away, and we invested a lot of money in there so we don't go away, if we go away, there'll be a significant impact on the farming community. At the low season, we employ about 450 people. At the high season, we employ about 1,000 people. And that's directly. And then indirectly, for example, we are 30% of the busy canning plant, which is down the road from us. If we stop taking cans from them, they become unviable. The, a lot of what's happening is you're also using the young generation of farmers. His comments were echoed by the dairy industry, who said the amount of milk being produced in Australia continues to shrink. Janine Waller is the Executive Director of the Australian Dairy Products Association. We have got a number of pressures, most of which is that we have the lowest uh, raw milk production that we've had in 30 years. So we're sitting at 8 billion litres and that's on the top of input costs. We've got uh, global commodity prices that are dropping. We do have a raft of cheaper imports coming into the country. And the biggest challenge with that is that you're seeing these cheaper cheese and butter products on the supermarket shelf. So there's about a $2.50 price differential between the price of Australian milk prices versus New Zealand prices. Sunrise, which has had to mothball or shut rice mills during times of low water, like the millennium drought, added its concerns as well. CEO Paul Serra. We employ on average 650 people in the region and inject more than $500 million in payments locally. However, if, as we referenced earlier, the ABARES report that pricing was to go above $200 a megalitre eight out of ten years, all of a sudden what the climate and the current water markets say is perhaps two or three years out of ten where it becomes uneconomical. If you start talking about six, seven, eight years out of ten where it becomes uneconomical to grow large quantities of rice, then it does put the entire industry at risk. And so there are tipping points that I think we should carefully understand and I really urge the Senate to take the time to understand those tipping points for each of the industry and to do the impact assessments of what that looks like so that we can come to I think a balanced outcome on on reform and, and ongoing uh, industry. All three businesses referenced the COVID restrictions that saw the lack of food being traded around the world and shortages of things like rice, tin tomatoes and other products in Australia. SPC Hassan Rafai says it's a matter of food security. Obviously, it's going to impact significantly on our prices, which will go to the consumer and, frankly, could put our business as well as the farmer's business that we buy from at risk because we, can't, we are already at a cost disadvantage for a variety of other reasons. This will just add to our disadvantage in terms of competing against cheap importers coming from everywhere from China to Italy to everywhere else. The Senate's Environment and Communications Legislation Committee is examining the Water Amendment Restoring Our Rivers Bill 2023 and is due to report next week on the 8th of November. After that, the Senate will be voting on the key extension to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And Warwick Long, with that report, will be watching that uh, legislation and if there are any amendments uh, to that uh, very closely. It's coming up to four minutes to one. Let's go first of all to markets and Wagga sheep and lambs, Leanne Dax. 
Good afternoon. 41,000 lambs and 17,100 sheep sold to most of the usual buying group, along with an uptick in restocking competition. Quality was again very mixed with big numbers of store lambs and hoggets. The market for trade lambs fluctuated and buyers did pay a premium for freshness. Trade lambs are unchanged to a few dollars dearer, making for from $86 to 138 averaging 518 cents a kilogram carcass weight. 24 to 26, 125 to 140. 26 to 30, 140 to 168, over 30 kilos, 160 to 175, Reno lambs, $44 to 74, old trade lambs, 56 to 112, heavy old lambs, 110 to 171, Merino hoggets, $27 to 91, crossbreds, $50 to 78, store lambs lifted 5 to $10 at the better end, plain stores, $31 to 40 two lambs with weight and frame forty five dollars to ninety two with a sheep bit to be sold Dax MLA. Let's go to Dubbo Cattle now and David Monk. Numbers are back by 400, free yarding of 3,395. It was a mixed yarding with good numbers of yearlings to suit the feeders and only limited numbers of young cattle to suit the trade. There were good numbers of well-finished grass steers, heifers and cows. Young cattle of the trade were up to 20 cents cheaper with quality of factor. Prime yearlings sold from 150 to 220. Heavier feeder steers and lightweight feeder heifers were up to 12 cents dearer, while the heavier feeder heifers were 9 cents cheaper. Feeder steers sold from 164 to 229, while feeder heifers sold from 145 to 214. Young cattle of the restockers were dearer with the young steers, selling to 248 and the young heifers 228. Ground steers were up to 20 cents dearer, while the ground heifers were 4 cents dearer. Prime ground steers sold from 170 to 223, while prime ground heifers sold from 170 to 197. Secondary cows were 9 cents dearer, while the prime heavyweight cows were firm. Two and three score cows sold from 125 to 163, while prime heavyweights sold from 155 to 195 to average 173. Heavy bulls sold to 184. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Uh, let's head to Yas Cattle now, and with the details, here's Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Cattle numbers eased to 391. The quality was good with plenty of feeder steers in forward condition. Heifers were limited, trade were very quiet, and while the export run was small, the quality did improve. Light yielding steers to feed and restock were dearer, with most ranging between 165 and 200 cents. Heavy feeders eased 8 to 10, 160 to 204. The limited supply of heifers sold between 141 and 170. Prime grown steers were stronger and ranged between 150 and 195 and lighter weight two tooths to feed on reached 200 cents. Grown heifers lift 5 to 10, the heavy heifers 158 to 181. Cows were 4 to 5 cents dearer, the medium weight two scores 138 to 155. Heavy three and four scores 155 to a top of 170. And this has been Graham Richard. And that's the market information for today. And, uh, of course, a reminder that uh, the weather conditions appear to have eased on the fire ground. Temperatures are down uh, in uh, northern New South Wales and also the mid-north coast around the Tenterfield area and uh, in north of that as well. So we're hopeful, uh, the Weather Bureau is saying that we're hopeful that we'll uh, see a bit more rain uh, in the next few days or so and hopefully uh, a few days of uh, 10 millimetres or more putting the, some of those fires out but uh, a reminder uh, to uh, stay listening to ABC Local Radio uh, throughout the uh, day to just get the latest uh, on any changes there might be in the weather situation and the fire situation as well and uh, also check out the RFS app Hazards Near Me as well for the latest details there too. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's coming up to news time.